purpose is transforming the world of work and business. Those leading the way are values-based and people-focused leaders who see business as a force for good. Host Kevin Monroe explores how tapping into the power of purpose infuses your business with meaning and touches the lives of your employees while positively impacting the communities you serve. With the Higher Purpose Podcast, here's Kevin Monroe. Hey, it's Kevin Monroe, and I want to welcome you to Episode 69 of the Higher Purpose Podcast. Hey, here's another first today on the podcast. You're joining a conversation where I'm sitting down with two people, Gary Ridge, who's the CEO of the WD-40 company, and Stan Seawitch, who is the Vice President of Global Development. And what prompted today's conversation is a blog post that Gary wrote earlier this year and posted on LinkedIn. The title of that post was How to Build an Epic Chief Human Resources Officer, CHRO, and CEO Relationship, as that's the epic partnership and relationship that Gary and Stan have shared for 20 years. So a couple of months ago, I reached out and inquired about the three of us sitting down to have this conversation and bring this blog post to life and explore it in richer dimensions than you could do just with uh, keyboard and screen. If you know Gary, Stan, or the WD-40 company, you know they have a unique culture and innovative approach. It's a way of being and doing that I believe will inspire you. I'm grateful for their willingness to join me, share their journey, and hopefully inspire myriads of other business leaders to create your own version of that epic relationship. So let's join in. What a delight to welcome Gary Ridge back to the Higher Purpose Podcast and have Stan join for the first time. We've got a dynamic duo joining today to talk about the epic partnership they share. So welcome both. Thank you. Thank you very much. So I've done something different with all the podcast conversations I've had lately. And this is the first one I've had with two guests at a time. It's going to be fun. So what's something you're grateful for in this moment? Let's ground today's conversation in gratitude. Well, thank you. I'm really grateful for the work that I get to do every day. I call it worthwhile work. Sometimes people say they're busy. I say I rejoice in an abundance of worthwhile work because when you see the work you're doing making a difference, it's very, very rewarding. I'd have to say something similar. Uh, Yesterday, talking to a bunch of high school students uh, about WD-40 Company, they said, well, your work sounds fun. I said, it's more than fun. It's meaningful. You can have fun, but without the meaningful part of it, it can be hollow. So let's talk about that a moment, Stan. Work could be fun and not meaningful, and it could be meaningful and not fun. Well, fun but not meaningful might be handing out samples to the kids yesterday. They don't really have much meaning with the product yet, and maybe they'll get there. And that was just a small part of what we did. Meaningful without fun is something that happened earlier this week. We lost a tribe member and her husband Mm. on an accident on vacation in Italy. Mm. She belonged to our German tribe. The meaningful part was rallying around that person's family and everyone on the tribe who had any type of a contribution to make was jumping on it from insurance to support for the family, et cetera. Well, thanks. Thanks for sharing that. So we're here today having Gary and Stan join to have this unique conversation, a lively conversation that's stimulated by a 
blog post that Gary wrote describing this 20-year epic relationship and journey you're on that I saw on LinkedIn, and I think you published it somewhere else. But let me ask, even before we go there, Stan, you used a word that I know is unique to WD-40 company when you talked about the tribe. Why do you all refer to your team or the people of WD-40 as a tribe? Well, Gary brought this concept to our company years and years ago, and what he was looking for is what are the qualities and characteristics of an organization that can be enduring, positive, and provide a place to work where people wanted to be there and wanted to stay there, even though their jobs may change, they were on a lifelong journey with the organization. And so coming from Australia, he was familiar with the Aborigines and their tribal mentality, he did more research on it and identified the characteristics of a tribe. And that fits nicely into what we're trying to create. So that name then became the encapsulation of those qualities that we wanted to create. Awesome. So I believe you've worked hard to establish a unique culture, which is what we're really going to talk about today. And this referring to people as your tribe is just one uniqueness, right? Go ahead, Gary. Yeah, and it's really based on Maslow's theory of self-actualization. And if you were to look up that pyramid as you climb to self-actualization, the first two rungs of that climb are providing or survival and security. And most organizations pay people and give them a reasonable amount of security around where they work. The third one is belonging. Mm. And this is where the opportunity lies because most organizations, and this is backed up by the horrible employee engagement measures we see around the world, it's absolutely horrendous to think that at least 65% of people in the USA are going to work today and they're either disengaged or actively disengaged. And the number is much higher outside the US. And it's because they don't feel like they belong. Mm. So in a tribe, you actually belong because you are there and it's based on certain behaviors and attributes. The number one attribute of a tribe is learning and teaching. And mm. the number one responsibility of a tribal leader is to be a learner and a teacher. Okay. Wow. There's a whole lot there. So I want to unpack some of this because in this article, you talked about this epic relationship and some of the fruit of it. And for me, I kind of think if the proof is in the pudding, Let's sample the pudding. And you just talked about engagement across the world. What does engagement look like for the WD-40 tribe? Imagine a place where you go to work every day, you make a contribution to something bigger than yourself, you learn something new, you're respected, you feel safe, and you go home happy. That's what we envision. Okay. That's what you envision. And the data that you have around your track record with employee engagement? 99.9% of people globally say they love to tell people they work at WD-40 company. And our current employee engagement measure in our last survey, and we've been doing these surveys for nearly 20 years, was 93.3%. Wow. And that is such an outlier when, according to the global studies and the data, it's usually like 33%. Reach right. to that. And there you are at 93%. I always think of you as this amazing outlier. Now, there's something I kind of jumped in and was so excited about. Let's talk about the different roles in this epic partnership. For folks that don't know you, Gary, let's introduce yourself and then Stan. And Stan, you can start. Okay. 
I got to know Gary in 2001 when WD-40 became one of our clients at a consulting business that I had for many years. And over the next 11 years, we worked together as an advisor to the company and some of my teammates also worked with the business. We worked on compensation, leadership development, executive coaching, a variety of things. And then in 2012, when I was preparing for uh, cutting back to only a 40-hour work week, I call that semi-retirement, <laughs> Gary took me out to lunch after a meeting in London. And after the second beer and a steak and ale pie, he asked the famous words that have changed the lives of many who have come into the company, which was, what if? <laughs> what if you came to work for WD-40? And I said, you mean part-time? And he said, no, <laughs> full-time. <laughs> Well, long story short, I couldn't think of another organization other than one that I might have made that I would have even considered mm. coming into as an employee at that stage of my life, nor would I have worked for anybody else that I knew. Wow. And your role is? I'm a vice president, global organization development. That's the CHRO role. But our focus and our attention, as we have titled it, is on how do we develop this organization to meet the needs of the future. Mm. Mm. Okay. And Gary, you are? Well, I'm the CEO. I'm uh, rejoicing in 32 years with the company. Started in Australia in 1987, moved here in 1994 and got the opportunity to lead the company in 1997. We we're about a quarter of the size in revenue. We had about a quarter of the number of people that we have now. And our market cap was about 10% of what it is now. And one of the big aha moments I had when I became CEO was micromanagement wasn't scalable. We had a dream <laughs> to take the blue and yellow can with a little red top to the world. And the only way we were going to do that was to come up with a way of empowering people around a culture that was very specific about what it wanted to do. I was lucky enough. I went back to school. I did a master's degree in leadership. That's where we met our dear friend, Ken Blanchard. I took a lot of his learning and kind of implemented it and the journey started. And mm -hmm. I didn't know it was going to work back then, but it certainly made common sense. The reason it made common sense was because I'd read a great book. It was called Everything You Need to Know You Learned in Kindergarten by Robert Fulgram. In fact, Ken Blanchard recommended it to me. And basically, if you take the principles of that book and you apply it to business, you end up with a opportunity to create a culture that's meaningful. You know, say please and thank you, pick up after yourself. If you go out at night, hold hands with someone, you know, don't walk across the road, blah, blah. It's just the common sense of life. Hmm. Hmm. All right. So when you wrote this blog post, as I was reading it again, I've read it several times, but as I was reading it again, the very last line really caught my eye. And it said this epic relationship that the two of you've shared that we'll go into in a little bit deeper, but you said it can be duplicated anywhere and everywhere. So my All question right. is, I'm sure there's some people that go, okay, what Stan just talked about is a very unique relationship you two have, and he wouldn't have gone to work anywhere else. Is it really something that can be replicated anywhere and everywhere? I believe so. I think Stan and I share a couple of very common beliefs in life. 
you know, firstly, we both believe we're consciously incompetent. Therefore, we have to be in a position to empower people to do great things. Secondly, we do believe that it is all about the people. And mm. if we can't create an environment to allow people to perform their own personal magnificence on a daily basis, it won't get anywhere. And the third thing that I think Stan and I really do agree on is ego is not a really uh, positive place to be. I often say most leaders I have seen who have failed, it's where their ego eats their empathy instead of their empathy eating their Mm. ego. Mm. And if you can get the balance between tough-minded and tender-hearted right, you win the respect of people and you win the opportunity of them to be wanting to follow you because they feel safe. Another thing that we share in common is the idea that leadership is about serving the organization and its future. Mm. And servant leadership is something that's become a popular phrase. But the truth of it as the proper way to lead has been around for many, many years. And we both believe that. And that's when it's not about you. Of the five reasons why people get into leadership, the one that is the most enduring and effective is that you're the best there is for the need of the moment. And if you weren't, you'd happily step aside for someone else who could lead better. It's a function that needs to be done. It's not a prize. It's not a place on a ladder. It's not a right. It's a service to be done. Mm. Now, has that ethos of servant leadership been there the entire time of your partnership? Well, I'd say Gary and I have consistently and continually dedicated our approach to that philosophy. But we have a variety of people in the company at a variety of stages in their career. It's a constant educational challenge and a reinforcement requirement for a senior leadership to first set the example and then to ensure that education, support, and experiences are provided so that other leaders throughout the organization can adopt it. And we don't promote people if they're not demonstrating that they can be a servant leader. Okay. Sometimes that gets to the tough-minded decisions we have to make. Yeah, so Gary? You think of it this way, Kevin. You know, culture is pretty simple when you think about it. You know, we did experiments at school, right? We got a Petri dish and we put some stuff in it. And over time, that turned into something else. Culture developed. Mm -hmm. So, no, this culture has built over time. You know, this is simple, but not easy. And time is not your friend. So one of the things we need to pay attention to, and one of the things that Stan and I are dedicated to is making sure if any foreign bodies get into that Petri dish, we don't allow them to impact the quality of the culture. We need to get them out of there as quick as we can. And we need to do the best job we can of making sure we don't create a situation where they can get in. That's why if you go to our website and people are looking to work at WD40 company, the first thing that pops up is our company values. And it says, if these don't align with you, don't bother going any further. Don't call us. You don't fit here. I love it. I love it. And how long have those values been, has that been an evolutionary process of developing that set of values or no? No, we um, developed the values probably 
20 years, more, maybe 15 to 20 years ago, it came out of a class that I did in my master's degree at USD. And in fact, one afternoon, I convinced Ken Blanchard to come and meet a group of our people and talk about the power of having a set of hierarchical values. And it took us about 18 months to two years to actually get comfortable with what values we all wanted to stand for. Hmm. Now, those values are embedded. They're part of our talent development program. They're in our review system for our tribe members. We talk about them. There's only two measures of values. You either live them or you visit them. And we don't want a lot of visitors. Mm -hmm. We ask people regularly to share with us how they have lived our values in the recent times. And in any time we're making a decision, it's not unusual. And in fact, it's common practice that we'll say, well, wait a minute. One of our values is you know, we want to create positive, lasting memories in all of our relationships. Help us understand how this behavior action will do that. A value is we value doing the right thing. The other thing that's important, each one of our values actually has a paragraph written about what that value means because it's easy to interpret it in a different way. You might say creating positive, lasting memories in all of our relationships means we're, you know, we're always singing kumbaya. Well, no, you know, we have crucial conversations, but we have them with respect and dignity. Hmm. A couple of things that you shared there. I want to call those out. And if either of you want to comment a little bit, one, that your values are not just a list of words, that you've taken the time to create statements around them, paragraphs so that explain it, so people know what they mean. And then also that you said hierarchical, they're rank ordered. That's right. The rank order is important because when you don't have rank order prioritization, it's easy to pick the value that confirms the decision you want to make. But when they're in order and are starting from the top is do the right thing, it's not always easy to discover what the right thing is, but we don't stop until we do. Then once that's done, next one is create positive lasting memories in all of our relationships. Sometimes doing the right thing you may not be able to guarantee it's a positive relationship for everybody. Mm. So you see how that works. And then the the last one is, the sixth one is sustain the WD-40 economy. The reason it's last is if you do the first five, nine times out of 10, you're going to create a positive economic outcome for the long term for all of our stakeholders. And Gary, one of the things I remember from a previous podcast conversation we had, the other reason it's rank ordered, you would never do anything to sustain the WD-40 economy that wasn't the right thing to do. Absolutely. It trumps it. Yeah. Absolutely. Yes. And we have used the number one value at times when it has violated the sixth value. Mm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I want to just tell you, I love the phrase, you can either live values or visit values. And you want to have a culture where people live values. And one of the things that I think about with values sometimes, it doesn't mean that everybody reaches the same decision, but if they're using the values, you respect the process they use to make the decision, right? Even if the decision, the outcome, you may not quite understand it. You can say, help me understand how you got to that decision. And when they take you through the values process, you go, oh, Okay, I might would have done it differently, but you honored the values. You live the values in your decision-making process. Exactly. It's a conscious path of thought. When I need to make 
decisions and I try not to make too many of them. <laughs> I will write the consideration at the top of the page. I will write the values down the side. I will in a column write who this might impact and I go down and I put ticks and crosses like a tic-tac-toe. Mm-hmm. And at the end of it, if there's more ticks than crosses, then I feel comfortable with what I'm considering. If there's more crosses than ticks, I need to think more about this and understand, you know, am I really being rational? Have I gathered the facts? Do I know what I need to know? I love the statement, if you want the answer now, it's no. You know, we need to have dwell time. We need to tell people to pause and think, consider. You know, the worst decisions I've made are quick decisions. They're the worst ones I've ever made. Mm-hmm. You know, Stan was telling me something the other day. It made me laugh. We had a situation that was going on and Stan said to me the next morning, I actually wrote that email to that guy last night and then I slept on it and I deleted the email this morning. <laughs> but it felt great to write it. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. But it wouldn't have felt great to send it. That's right. It felt great for a moment, but it wouldn't have had the result you wanted. So, yeah. I'm curious. One of the things you said that's important, that's a value you shared, is it's all about the people. What's required for that to be authentic ethos of the partnership and the culture and not just a blurb on the wall? Well, it's a short phrase. It can be misinterpreted. When we say it's all about the people, it means that without people, we don't have a company. Without the right people, we don't have a successful company. Without the right people who also believe the same things that we believe are important in our values, in our direction, then you have a disjointed set of folks working against each other. If you don't pay attention to the people and help them develop, they can't succeed. Mm -hmm. If you don't guide them back to the path they should be on when they stray, then you have discord, destruction, and fragmentation of the organization. So it means paying attention to everything related to people. We have a systemic approach to it. It is involving our compensation system, our learning and development strategies and philosophies, our philosophies about how to have policies and how to keep them as few as possible so that our principles and our values are guiding what we do. It's permeating everything that we do. And if we don't answer the people questions first, then the business strategy questions are actually a distraction. So we start with the people questions first. Mm, Okay. Now, here's a great line from the blog post, and it's written, I take it from the perspective, Gary's perspective of the CEO about you stand the CHRO. You don't give me what I ask for. You help me create what I envision. Now, I love that line. What does that look like? And some of those interactions, how do you get to the point where you're understanding what Gary's seeking rather than just what he said? And then if there's ever a time you've pushed back and helped him understand that differently, is Gary receptive to that immediately? Or how does that work? When I accepted the invitation to come on board, I knew we were already completely aligned on the vision of where this company could go and what we wanted to create. That's never been in question, and I wouldn't have joined the company if there was a question. What has been part of our conversations as years go by is we have different views about how to accomplish that vision. And in my role and in my area of responsibility, I'm focused on a certain part of the business, not the entire business in terms of my day-to-day function. So that means I may not be aware of other aspects that Gary is aware of or is thinking about. 
So we might have different ideas on how to accomplish that long-term vision. But we allow that. We allow that discontinuity in how we perceive what needs to be done today or tomorrow. So we have debates. We discuss. Gary will listen. He might disagree in the moment. But one thing Gary does a lot is he asks himself, why do I think that? Why do I believe that? He goes away and thinks about it and comes back with a more considered approach. And maybe it's the same decision. And I understand better about why we're going direction A versus B. Or it might be, he said, well, maybe let's look at B again. Let me hear more about why you think that, Stan. I have a saying that I often use is reasonable people who share the same values and absorb the same information will probably have a similar point of view. So anytime that I am off page with someone, I think, well, am I being reasonable? Are they being reasonable? Are we sharing the same values? And have we absorbed the same information? In most cases, Mm. it's the information that hasn't been absorbed. So if Stan comes to me with something and I go, oh, you know, I don't really get that. I often ask Stan this question, Stan, what triggered that question? Mm. what's behind the question? Because what we have is beliefs, feelings, and intentions that drive our point of view. So if someone has a different point of view, what beliefs, feelings, or intentions are different to the way I might be seeing them? So that's, as I said, I often say, Stan, what triggered that question? Because I'm not sure where it's coming from. And he'll say, this is what triggered it. And that will give me a hint. Okay, I think I know where he's coming from on this. I'm better equipped to have a meaningful conversation. Right, Stan? That's right. And sometimes when you ask me that question, I realized that I took two data points and drew a line as opposed to getting 20 data points and really determining a trend. But it's always been instructive and useful. So, Gary, I want to ask you a question. Speaking for yourself, not all CEOs, because I wouldn't ask you to do that. What do you need from Stan, and how does Stan show up as a thought partner for you? Well, I let's not call him Stan. Let's okay. call him a supportive, you know, CHRO, because that's who we're talking to. Number one, I need him to understand the business. I think one of the flaws in most areas of what they used to call human resources is they don't understand the business. So we actually encourage and support our people in non-sales and marketing areas to actually get out there and understand the business. What is the business all about? So that would be number one. Number two would be having a complete alignment with Where do we want to go? What is our vision? We say that it's vision, values, planning, execution, and learning are the key attributes that help us use our time, our talent, and our treasure and technology. So are those in place? But I think understanding the business and what makes it tick, what I find frustrating is when I talk to other leadership groups and I say, okay, who's at the senior leadership table? And human resources are missing. Yeah. So why? Where does the HR report into? Or how can that be so? And even before Stan joined me, I had the head of human resources at that time reporting to me. Sitting around our tribal leadership table are the operating unit leaders, our finance leader, our legal leader, our quality leader, our R&D leader, and our human resources organizational development leader. And I think that's super important. Do you have something you want to add? 
Yes and no. The no part is that I don't have anything to disagree with what Gary said. You got to be knowledgeable of the business. In fact, our HR people often come from other parts of the business that not from HR. We have an HR manager who came to us from support services, admin and finance. Another one came out of marketing. Mm-hmm. They're wonderful hybrids that really create better understanding. But what I would add too is that we believe, I think Gary and I, that the CHRO is the CEO. It can't be anybody else. I work for the CHRO. Let's say more about that because that was something I wanted to get to in a moment, but I'm glad we're talking about it now. So while you carry that responsibility, a lot of those responsibilities stand as in your role, but Gary ultimately is the CHRO. And you believe that the CEO should be? Absolutely. Because if the CEO is not thinking of himself or herself as the chief people officer, then their behavior won't be the example that others need to follow. If Gary, and then by extension, his direct leadership reports, don't live the values, live the culture, adopt the role of an elder and a teacher, a servant leader, then it doesn't go anywhere. You can't delegate that to another party. The head of the company has to be the person to set that example. So a question I want to ask, Gary, back with that, you said oftentimes in other leadership conversations, it comes up that the CHRO isn't at the table. How do people respond when you suggest they should be? They probably dwell and think about it, but I think it's because they don't understand the power of the people that's not at the table at the time. I mean, you know, when we went started on this journey, that a lot of the leaders are so influenced by short-term results, having to have the result. You know, they want the people at the table that are going to deliver the next 30, 60 or 90 days. Dealing with people, they will deliver the next year and five years, but it's not a quick fix. We're dealing with the most complex thing in the world ourselves. We are screwed up and it takes time. I think it's important. I guess only because we've lived through it or we live it, do we understand the power of having that part of the organization being at the table. And then Stan, as you interact with other HR leads, CHROs or whatever their title is in the HR space, what kind of questions do you hear or how common is the experience? Are people asking, because I know this is a common question around term, how do you get a seat at the table? What are the questions you hear around that? I do hear that. How do you get that seat at the table? How do you get the strategic importance on the role that you as an an HR professional or leader feel is important? And I've always responded with the comment that if you have to ask the question, then you're not going to like the answer. Because if your goal is to, quote, get a seat at the table, then your objective is wrong. Yeah. The goal is to be of value. If you're providing value in your role, if you understand the business, if you know how to contribute towards that organization's strategy and long-term set of goals, if you know how to advise, then people will drag you to the table. Mm. Mm. Okay. Talking about this business and people strategy, and you said people first, how do you keep the business strategy and people strategy synchronized? I'll give you a small example. We have a set of 
programs for education that all employees can avail themselves of called Learning Laboratory. That includes detailed workshops on leadership, on competency development, project management, how to understand finances, influencing without authority, all kinds of subjects that we developed and provide to tribe members around the world. One of the things that we include is a workshop on strategic thinking. Mm. In that strategic thinking workshop, we put our values as one of the methods of teaching strategic thinking. It's a tool, just as Gary said. We put into those workshops all of the principles of guiding people. So in one part, in organizational development, we teach that the company's values come first, then the strategies, then the shorter-term goals, then the functions, metrics, et cetera. Because if you're changing your values every time your strategy changes, then you don't really have values. The values determine what strategies you would even consider within your industry and business model. All right, Stan, another question for you, and then I'll let Gary weigh in. But WD-40, you mentioned around the world, truly a global company. We're spread thin and wide. Yeah. We're spread thin and wide. We have about 500 people in 15 countries wow. traveling to 176. Wow. So how do you manage those nuances of the business? And, you know, HR, a people strategy across cultures, across countries where things are so different. What are some of the nuances of that? Well, if we had to manage through policy books, we have killed ourselves off a long time ago. We manage through principles, values, philosophies. We arrive at a coherent set of them at the global leadership level. And then we delegate the accountability for implementation to the regions where they have the autonomy to adapt, customize, and determine what specifics are appropriate for each country. And that allows us to keep a consistent and coherent organizational culture and set of principles and guidelines. But we don't have to manage a set of 15 volumes of policy books or have to police the world to try to ensure compliance at a detail level. Okay, building on the previous question, tying it with that, you were talking about how you all invest richly in the development of your people. Talking to some of my friends at SHRM, they were curious, how would you recommend HR colleagues skill up that may not have been exposed to the business acumen in their journey? How could they grow into being more business savvy? Well, first, you got to be curious. You got to take in the information. It's all there and available. You just go ask the accounting and finance people for the quarterly reports. If you don't understand it, you schedule time with them and sit down with them and have them educate you. You take a course. You get in a car and drive to the manufacturing sites and go watch the product being made. You go on market visits with the salespeople and you ask a lot of questions and keep your mouth shut. You have to dig into the business and be curious about it. And then you have to demonstrate that you've assimilated that information and you can apply it in how you conduct yourself as a professional in HR. I'll give you a small example. When we do headcount planning, we educate our leaders through our HR people who are required to know it. What is the incremental revenue, margin, and profitability requirement for every dollar in labor costs that we add in the current fiscal year And what will be that impact over the career of that person who we hope stays here for 20 years? 
if they can't answer that financial question about the impact on the business of that commitment to hire, Hmm. then they're not adequately educated about what it means to be a business partner with human resources as your expertise. One small example. Okay, great. That's a great example. Thank you. The other thing I just want to emphasize that Stan touched on was the difference between principles and policy and values and police. The principles that we agree at a leadership level, what are the principles and procedures that we are going to adopt globally? And our values then drive the implementation of those right through the organization. So we don't need a police force saying, here's our policy, you know, and then if you don't abide by it, you're going to get whacked. Mm -hmm. We all agree on it. Then we hold ourselves accountable from the highest level. We say, this is what we agreed. Now, maybe you've wandered off the page a little bit because it left your memory, but we'll remind you. So when we wander off the page, we're not coming in there as an attacker. We have, as you know, Kevin, we don't make mistakes. We have learning moments. Don't have the same learning moment three times. That's not a very good career move. But, you know, I think that's the sort of conversations you can have. So it's principles and procedures instead of policy and values instead of police and enforcement. Oh, I love that. I love that. Okay. I do know that about learning moments and mistakes, but for folks that may not know that in the history or the culture of WD-40 company, explain that a little bit. One of the biggest fears we have as human beings is to admit we fail. So many, many years ago, we said what we want to do is take the fear of failure out of the behavior. So we said, instead of saying we make mistakes, we're going to adopt the principles of the learning moment. And the learning moment is a positive or negative outcome of any situation that has to be openly and freely shared to benefit all. So, you know, you don't hear people running around corridors in buildings yelling out, I failed, I failed, I'm a failure, I'm a failure. But what you do hear a lot of WD-40 is, yeah, I just had a learning moment around that and here's how it impacted me and how it might impact you. Or, hey, I had a learning moment about that and here's if I share it with you, you might be able to capitalize on that in a positive way. Hmm. Okay, something else that I know is unique about the WD-40 culture and I think a lot of the business world is catching up on this, but this is the subtitle of your book, Gary, Helping People Win at Work, Don't Mark My Paper, Help Me Get an A. When was it? How many years ago was it that you started just changing the way you were evaluating employees and the annual performance process? Well, Ken and I published that book in 2009. So that was 10 years ago when we went public with it. We tested it probably three to five years before that. So I'm guessing it's at least maybe 15 years where we said we're going to hand out the final paper at the beginning of the year and then we're going to help you learn the answers. Mm Mm-hmm. When you look around and you see that largely businesses are coming on board, that what we've done around evaluation and performance management is broken, do you smile a little thinking, well, we got a little ahead of the curve, just figuring that out, got lucky or whatever? Well, I don't really smile. I think to me, it was like an aha moment in that one of the reasons we disappoint people in life is because we're not clear about what we expect from them. And, you know, I think it's only fair that 
we get very clear of what our expectations are of each other. And that's what we do at the beginning of the year. And then it's our job as leaders to help people get that A. That's a true commitment to wanting people to step into the new best version of their personal self. The great thing about it is people once it's embedded in an organization, people really do feel that we're here to help them and make them better, not to punish them. Hmm. So to me, I, those that don't get it, I go, I don't understand why you don't get it. Cause again, it's one of these dumb things. If you know what you expect of each other, then you're not going to disappoint each other. Hmm. Hmm. Okay. So I'm going to ask a question and it may be, you may hear this question. Like I'm asking a fish, how it feels to swim in water, because it's just so natural to you. But I think for others, they're like, this is interesting. So what are the practices you've developed and maintained that cultivate and continue mutual respect where hard truths can be spoken and received in a safe setting? I think that's language from the blog post, this hard truth spoken and received in a safe setting. It doesn't start overnight. It's developed over time where People who are in the culture or in the organization see examples where people had a learning moment and weren't fired. They had a learning moment, and in some cases, they were praised for it because it was an intelligent, hardworking mistake. We even have a video series we're doing on called Strategic Thinking. What were we thinking? And it's about what might appear to be, quote, mistakes of strategy of the past, which maybe didn't turn out the way we had thought they would, but they were learning moments that were then used and applied to create future successes in a different way. We have a lot of those. Mm. And those interviews are with the top of the organization, with Gary, with our chief strategy officer, with the former head of our innovation group, so that people can see full transparency and disclosure. And it's designed to help educate them about what were we thinking, what was the result? What did we learn by it? And how was it applied in the future? Stan and I were talking about something earlier this morning that keeps reminding us. And Stan has a great philosophy on honoring the absent. Mm. Stan, why don't you share the power of that? This came up as we were forming our Global Leadership Council many years ago. What was our charter? What did we want? And the idea at that time that we adopted was speak well of people who aren't in the room. Hold them in respect in your mind and in your words, because what you say about someone when they're not there has the power to destroy relationships, mm -hmm. to impede progress, and to prevent people from improving. So honoring the absent means talk about them as if they're in the room. And don't say something in the room that you haven't already said to them. Yeah, yeah. Go direct. Well, the other thing that happens with that, right, is the security that creates for people who are in the room now that may be absent at some point in the future. They know that they're going to be honored when they're not there. And you better be brave. A real brave person will tell someone the truth. Yes. And you hit it right on the head. The worst thing about not honoring the absent is the impact it has on those in the room because the first thing that goes through their mind is what is that person saying about me when yeah. I'm not here to either defend or at least be part of this conversation? Absolutely, absolutely. 
Gary, what would you say if there's something out of this, you writing this post and the two of you sharing this journey, what prompted you to share that? And you want to encourage others or what was the impetus of it? I think we have the opportunity to share something special that can make a difference in people's lives. And as Gary has said before, 30% or 33% of the American employed population are engaged. The rest are either not engaged or actively disengaged working against their organization. Globally, that number of engagement is 15%. Mm. It's an incredible untapped source of improvement of the quality of life on the planet if organizations which are the economic drivers of livelihoods could change that direction what do you say about world peace Stan? my phrase is world peace through lubrication (laughs) which means if this little company can cross national boundaries cultures religions conventions and customs and create a tribe of cohesive people who feel like they belong with each other, then why can't other organizations, even countries do that? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So let me ask, what would you say, and I'll ask it from your perspectives, Stan from the CHRO, what do you hope CHROs listening to this take away from the conversation? And then Gary, the same thing, what do you hope CEOs carry with them? For other leaders of HR, I'd say if you're complaining about not being at the table, then you're paying attention to the wrong things. Be better, get better, be more valuable, be a better advisor, better business partner, and honestly, quit whining, go get it done. Awesome. I would say you will, to the CEOs that are listening, you will have a much richer, more enjoyable, more fulfilling role in an organization where you have people at the forefront and them improving and having a great life is more important to you than the 30 day result. Mm. And I think that's what makes me excited every day is that this is a journey. And again, it's simple. It's not easy. And time is not your friend. You have to be deliberately consistent. I love it. So let me just ask, invite either of you, is there something you'd want to add to this conversation before we close that makes it whole for you? Yeah. I've never had more fun doing meaningful work than working with WD-40 company, both before and after being an employee. And I know it's possible for any other organization to do it. It doesn't take a new app. It doesn't take a new form. It doesn't take anything except the intention to make real meaningful connections with human beings to jointly try to improve their lives. Wow. And I think for myself, this is the most exciting day in my life, the day that I came to work today. And I really believe in the fact that, you know, life is a gift. So don't send it back unwrapped. And we can unwrap things here and just seeing the joy on people's faces. And, you know, they're tough times. This is not Nevada or whatever you want to call it. It's tough sometimes, but it's worth it. It Mm. really is worth it. And I didn't know how much it would be worth 32 years ago. But when I look back, I go, wow, that played hard, done good. All right. Stan, Gary, thank you so much for joining. Thank you for contributing to a rich conversation about relationship, about culture, and I think most importantly about this fun and meaningful work that we want everyone to have the opportunity to experience. Well, thank you, Kevin. G'day.
Thank you, Gary and Stan, for joining and just contributing to a rich conversation. Hey, I'm wondering what stands out to you. And part of that may depend on where you sit or serve in the organization as to how you heard the conversation and how you reflect on this conversation. Here are the ideas that piqued my ears and interest as I was going through the conversation. For all of us, I love this distinction. Either ego is eating empathy or empathy is eating ego. And I hope empathy is eating ego and that your ego has given way to you really living and practicing empathy. The parts of the conversation where we talked about culture values, those are of keen insight and importance. Culture, as Gary said, is simple, but it's not easy. And time is not your friend. Invest in culture and keep culture vibrant. And values are so important and formative of the culture. And it's important to create a hierarchy of your values so you know what's most important. And because there are times, as Gary said, that one value is pitted against another in a decision. So having a hierarchy of values keeps you focused on true north. And then once you have your values, you define them, you describe them so people understand you know, what it really means to be a value-based organization. And then you have an option. Either you're living your values or you're visiting values. And you know the truly great organizations, organizations that you respect, organizations that you consider remarkable for the encounters you've had with them, they're living their values. Then the idea that principles and values become how you lead the organization and together they eliminate the need for policing. I'd love to hear what stood out to you. I know there are folks, some of you listening are in that HR world and role. Others are in the leadership and CEO role. Feel free to reach out to me. It's Kevin at HigherPurposePodcast.com. Thanks for listening. Be sure to join in next week. We have another fascinating conversation. And until then, live, love, and lead with purpose. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Higher Purpose Podcast. Are you using your values effectively in your company? Defining and communicating them clearly can have a huge impact. Find out more at 28daysprint.com. That's 28daysprint.com.